1: Heard all across the United States, Canada, and around the world, this is the Bible Answer Man broadcast with Hank Hanegraaff. Hank is president of the Christian Research Institute. At CRI, our desire is to equip you to not only defend the historic Christian faith, but become an apprentice of Jesus Christ, because life and truth matter. To learn more or to find resources to help you grow in grace, call 888-7000-CRI. That's 888-7000-274, or go to our website at equip.org. The following program was pre-recorded. And now, here's Hank Hanegraaff. Thank you very much,
2: Randy. And I have incarnation on my mind. I've uh, been thinking about the incarnation. Well, I guess for quite a number of days, but today in particular, I was stunned when I read an article in the Washington Post by a pastor, a reverend, Reverend Ruth Everhart. You'd be intrigued by the title. Pastor Everhart writes, our culture of purity celebrates the Virgin Mary and as a rape victim, that hurts me. She goes on to say that church culture tends to be, well, fixated on sexual purity, and that year round, and especially during Advent. I'm tempted, she says, to blame it on the Virgin Mary. After all, she set an impossibly high bar. Church culture has over-focused on virginity, and in many ways, made it into an idol of sexual purity. The bottom line, she says, is to try to be sexually pure is just way too much pressure. And I couldn't help but think as I was reading this article that actually Mary takes the pressure off by being the chosen vessel through whom redemption has been made possible. We can't really emulate her. What we can emulate is her wholehearted devotion to God, her humility. And we can honor her as first among the saints. I love what C.S. Lewis said. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not as much about the changed life, it's about what the early church fathers talked about when they talked about the exchanged life, the great exchange. But the more I contemplate incarnation, I suppose the more staggered my imagination becomes, at least properly conceived of. The very thought that the one who spoke in a hundred... Well, a hundred billion galaxies now is a small number. I mean, we're recognizing that there are two trillion galaxies, but trillions of galaxies, we can say safely, they leapt into existence. To think that he should cloak himself in human flesh is, well, I suppose, unthinkable. To imagine that the very one who knit me together in my mother's womb, and you too, would inhabit... Mary's womb quite simply boggles the mind, and yet that is precisely what Christianity proffers. It offers a Creator beyond comprehension who has revealed Himself in incarnation. Think about it. Quite literally, coming in flesh. This is the greatest of all revelations. The apostle to the Gentiles, I'm talking about Paul, captured the embodiment of revelation in describing Jesus Christ as, these words are fantastic, the image or the icon, the image of the invisible God. God was pleased, said Paul, to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross that, then, is the climax of divine revelation. God with us, the infinite, has progressively revealed Himself in accordance with our finitude. And therefore, prior to Emmanuel, general and special revelation revealed His glory already. But and just contemplate this. In the incarnation, we have seen his glory. The ineffable comes in incarnation. And that shouldn't make Mary the bad person. <laughs> we we can't emulate Mary. She was a chosen vessel of God. We can venerate her, but we cannot emulate her. We can thank her. That because she became a vessel, we don't have to become pure in and of ourselves. The incarnate Christ can come and live within us and then change us such that we can become what we were intended to be, again not by might nor by power but by His Spirit. A lot of people hanging on. We'll go right to the phone lines. By the way, I have written a book on incarnation, The Ultimate Self-Revelation of God. It is available through the Ministry of the Christian Research Institute. Check it out on the web. Equip.org. First up, Cleo, listening in Missouri. Hi, Cleo.
3: Hi, Hank. Thank you so much for taking my call, and I hope I can put my question to you right. Um, I have a Jewish uh, family that I'm friends with, and I know the Jewish people don't believe that uh, Christ has come, they're still waiting for him, but because they know the Old Testament so well, aren't they calling God a liar because of of, uh, them not believing his, his words and the prophecy?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting... However you parse this, I think what you said is absolutely true. There's only one who could emerge through the doorway of the Old Testament prophets, and that is Jesus Christ. I actually, in my book Incarnation, give you a litany of reasons why, and I've associated them with the letters of the alphabet, A through G. His ancestry couldn't have been faked, obviously. His birthplace of all the towns and hamlets of the world only one would do, his crucifixion, in other words, the way in which he would die, the date of his visitation given within very narrow historical time parameters, the E, he would be an extraordinary worker of miracles, He would fulfill the law and the prophets remember what Jesus said I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets I came to fulfill them and that he would be a light to the Gentiles the G So his glory could go out to the ends of the earth. So you look at the very narrow Parameters only one can emerge through that doorway. It's Jesus Christ and that's really why the teachers of the law were said to be those who had committed the unpardonable sin In a historical sense, they knew who Christ was, but they didn't want to recognize him as Christ. Why? Because it would have upset their own political power, their own popularity, and their own prestige. And so instead of recognizing that the temple was now in their midst, they did the unthinkable. They said, Jesus is doing what he is doing by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. An unthinkable claim. So, yeah, and you know, in the New Testament you see something very, very similar to that. Think about what John says. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So God gives a testimony... And instead of saying, this is the testimony of God, I believe God, they deny the testimony of God. Or you think of 1 John chapter 2, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So I think that your words can certainly be contextualized by the Scriptures. But this is such
3: a day of enlightenment, there's so much proof, just it's like, I don't know, I guess like being blind or being trained for so long the same way you just can't see?
2: Well, yes and no. Here's what I would say. God gives plenty of light. You know, if they were blind, then they would not be guilty. But because they actually can see, therefore their guilt remains, the Bible makes plain, right? So the idea here is that we got plenty of light. It's not that we don't have enough light it's that we don't respond to the light we have. And that's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, light has come into darkness, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But Jesus in effect is saying, the problem is not that they didn't have enough light. They're repressing the light that they have.
3: Okay. Well, thank you so much. You've you've helped me with that. I just, uh, I had a hard time trying to understand how their thinking is and, uh, but uh, I love your program and thank you for taking my call.
2: Well, thank you, Cleo. Appreciate your call. By the way, I want to thank those that make this radio platform possible because I couldn't be saying what I'm saying without you. So thanks for standing shoulder to shoulder with me in the battle for life and truth. We'll be right back with more.
1: Apologetics, the defense of the faith, is a handmaiden of evangelism and a vital partner of discipleship. With it, the Christian can engage and graciously disarm the generally naïve and caricatured objections of skeptics. Without it, one will be unable to withstand the rising tide of militant secularism and anti-Christian thinking. To enable the Christian Research Institute to continue producing quality apologetics resources accessible worldwide, simply call 888-7000-CRI. That's 888-7000-CRI, or visit equip.org. Don't tune out. Hank Hanegraaff will be back in a moment. This then is the climax of divine revelation, God with us. The infinite has progressively revealed himself in accordance with our finitude, Thus, prior to Emmanuel, general and special revelation revealed His glory, but in the incarnation, we have seen His glory. Thus writes Hank Hanegraaff in his book, Incarnation, the Ultimate Self-Revelation of God. In short, God's incarnation in human flesh is the apex of revelation, His last word. In taking on human flesh, God gives us more than the clearest image of who He is. He gives us Himself. To receive your copy of Incarnation as our appreciation for your financial partnership, simply call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support CRI's life-changing outreaches or visit equip.org. Equip.org.
3: Truth Matters, Life Matters More by Hank Hanegraaff is essentially two books in one. Because Truth Matters, Part 1 equips Christians to defend the essential truths of the historic Christian faith. In Part 2, Hank explains why life matters more and how we can experience the height of human existence, union with God in Christ. Simply put, the map is not the territory, the menu is not the meal. We cheat ourselves of authentic union with Christ when we elevate the message above the Messiah. Truth Matters, Life Matters More is a modern classic and the magnum opus of one of the great theological minds of our time. To receive Truth Matters, Life Matters More, simply call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift in support of the life-changing work of the Christian Research Institute. That's 888-7000-CRI or go online to equip.org.
1: Anyone who's been paying attention knows there's a war going on. Not just on traditional morality, civility, and decency, but even more fundamentally on historic notions of truth. And the enemy isn't just the onslaught of fake news facilitated by a post-truth culture and turbocharged by growing legions of ideological spin doctors. No, the real enemies of truth range from post-modernist convictions that there is no objective truth to militant scientism that claims that only science can determine truth, and religion is little more than primitive superstitions. But CRI support team members are not waving a white flag of surrender. They're holding the fort by undergirding every one of Christian Research Institute's mind-shaping and life-changing outreaches 24-7. To learn how you can make a difference and enjoy all the benefits of support team membership, simply visit equip.org. let's return to your host Hank Hanegraaff thank you much
2: Randy and right back to our phone callers next up is Dick listening in Marysville Washington hi Dick
4: hi Hank I'd like to know Mark chapter 9 verse 47 did Jesus ever speak hyperbole or is this a direct command.
2: No, no, that is not a direct command. That is prophetic hyperbole for sure. The reference to mutilation is an illustration of decisive action in order that we might avoid sin. Obviously, does not advocate literal amputation because you think about it if your eye offends you, gouge it out, throw it away, or if your right hand offends you, cut it. I mean, that does not in any way change the predisposition of the heart. You don't need an eye to lust and you do not need a hand to be sexually impure. Because really it is what Jesus said in other contexts, that it's not what goes in a man's mouth and then out through his body that defiles him. It is that which proceeds from the heart. The principle being here that the heart is the wellspring of iniquity. And evil. So it's ultimately prophetic hyperbole that Jesus is using here to show the gravity of sin and why we ought to resist it. And I think it also refers, in a sense, to harmful relationships that have to be severed for the salvation of the party's involved. So there's a rich tapestry of meaning in the passage, but most certainly it is prophetic hyperbole, and Jesus oftentimes used that very thing to make points.
4: Okay, thank you very much. I had also talked to a Lutheran pastor, and he gives me pretty much the same as what you said, that it is hyperbole and not a direct command.
2: Well, that's absolutely right, and hyperbole is just another figure of speech particularly prevalent in prophetic passages in the Bible in general. It employs what's called exaggeration for effect or emphasis. That's why, etymologically, it's called overcasting or extravagant overshooting. So if I step onto a scale and I say, oh my goodness, I weigh a ton, and believe me, I do that all the time, I'm obviously not intending to say that I literally weigh 2,000 pounds, nor if I say I was so surprised you could have knocked me over with a feather, I'm not intending to convey that I weigh nothing at all. Hyperbole is commonly used in the culture, but it's virtually ubiquitous in biblical passages. I think about prophetic passages. In prophesying Jerusalem's destruction, for example, Jesus said, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Well, he was not literally predicting that the destruction of Jerusalem would be more cataclysmic than the catastrophe caused by Noah's flood. But he was using apocalyptic hyperbole to underscore the distress and devastation that would be experienced when Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed. Many other examples could be given. Let's move on. We'll talk next to Anthony in Topeka, Kansas. Hi, Anthony.
4: Hi, Hank. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing good.
4: I love your ministry. Thank you. My question is about the wedding at Cana, and the bigger question about the issue of wine. Um, Some brothers and sisters believe Christians should never drink any alcohol, including wine, my stance has always been the Bible is against drunkenness, but it's not necessarily forbid the consumption of wine, say with a meal or after dinner or anything like that. Beginning to get drunk is sin. But the wedding at Cana, did Jesus turn the water into wine with alcohol, or was it just grape juice? Some insisted it was grape juice because if he had changed it to alcoholic wine, they say he would have been contributing to drunkenness, that sort of thing.
2: Well, there's a problem with that, right? And the problem is context, context, context. There's no way in which you can read that passage. There's no way in which you can twist it or crush the grapes such that it becomes grape juice. The context is very clear that this was alcohol. Now, it probably didn't have the same level of alcoholic content that typical bottles of wine do today. However, This is most certainly fermented, and it does have alcoholic content. And so your first point, I think, is the right point. Wine can be a blessing, just as food can be a blessing. But if you overeat, God calls you a glutton. If you overdrink, God calls you a wine-bibber. And both of them have severe ramifications in terms of being a steward of the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, from my perspective, nothing wrong whatsoever with having a glass of wine. However, in many cases, people just don't drink because they know their own proclivities. They're sensitive to it. They know that they don't have a filter and oftentimes don't know when to stop. And they know they have obsessive personalities or whatever. They know themselves, and because of that, they're careful. And they say, it's better for me to abstain altogether. Is that bad? Not at all. I think it's great. But I don't think that ought to be a universal principle, and certainly we can't make it a principle that is proffered by the first great miracle that Jesus did.
4: Yeah, amen, absolutely. That's, that's pretty much my stance. And there was a time when um, I was out at dinner with some people, and uh, I asked them, they're from another denomination, would you be offended if I ordered a glass of wine? They said yes. So, and the discussion, I didn't do it. I ordered a raspberry lemonade.
2: That's wonderful. I mean, first of all, it's wonderful on two counts, that you asked, and secondly, that when you found out that this is something that would be offensive to them, that you didn't push it. I think it's wonderful. I mean, if you can have a wonderful discussion about this, and it's an open discussion, that's great as well. Then both parties can learn something. But I think it's wonderful the way you handled it.
4: Well, absolutely. Amen. Amen, Hank. Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year.
2: (laughs) You as well. Thank you. Back to the phone lines, we'll talk to Michelle in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Michelle.
3: Hi, Mr. Hanegraaff. My question
4: centers around Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. It's kind of two-part. In the first verse, the Lord is telling Ahaz to ask the Lord his God for a sign, um, which I didn't think we were supposed to do that and Ahaz says that he won't do that, and then God goes on to say that he would give a sign, and then he starts talking about the birth of Jesus. And then in chapter, in uh, verses 15 and 16, he talks about Jesus um, eating curds and honey, and um, n- when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. And I, that just kind of threw me, and I'd like if you could please explain. It. I I think he was talking about Jesus, but I was confused because of the, you know, knowing how to choose good over
3: evil, please.
2: Yeah, I think what's really important here is what you mentioned in the prologue to your question. Think about this for a moment. Isaiah 7 actually opens with intrigue. You have Ahaz. He's the monarch of a tiny kingdom of Judah. And that kingdom is shaken because there are Two kings that are on their flank. One is Rezin of Syria and the other is Pekah of Israel. And those kings are plotting the ruin of Judah. So Isaiah then exhorts Ahaz to trust the Lord with all his heart, to keep calm, don't be afraid, because God is going to take care of those two superpowers on their flank. And though Ahaz was largely faithless, God was faithful. He provides this sign guaranteeing that Pica and Rezin would come to ruin. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, promised Isaiah. And before it, the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. So what happens? That is actually fulfilled. You find the fulfillment in Isaiah chapter 8. And it is when Isaiah's wife gives birth to Maharshala Huzbaz, quick to the plunder, is what that means. So it is fulfilled in Isaiah's son, born through his wife who gave birth in the manner of all women. Now Isaiah takes this passage and he reads a typological meaning into it, which is to say, you will receive temporary salvation... From these two superpowers, but it points to a far greater event on the horizon in which Jesus Christ will provide eternal liberation from sin and destruction. So there's a lot going on there. I've written about this in some detail in Has God Spoken? because I want people to understand how typological prophecies work, and this is the quintessential typological prophecy. We are getting precariously close to the end of the broadcast. And I have to tell you, there are so many people that help this minister because they recognize the significance of this ministry. And I'm grateful for that. The ministry is impacting people all over the world. This ministry is making a difference, but it's making a difference because of people just like you. And so I I thank those again from the bottom of my heart that are standing with us prayerfully and financially in the battle for life and truth. Only from the perspective of eternity will you fully understand how God is using you for the extension of his kingdom through this one-of-a-kind ministry outreach. If you can join CRI's monthly support team, be pleased to personalize a book to you, a family member, a friend. Thank you for standing with us. I'll be right back here, Lord willing, tomorrow with more answers to your questions right here on the Bible Answer Man
1: broadcast. Thank you for joining us for the Bible Answer Man broadcast. If you'd like more information about the Christian Research Institute or to order resources, just call 888-7000-CRI. That's 888-7000-274. Or visit equip.org where you can listen live or download archived broadcasts. Again, that's equip.org. You can also write to us at post office box 8500 Charlotte, North Carolina, zip code 28271. The Bible Answer Man broadcast is supported by listeners like you. We're on the air because life and truth matter. An infinite God reduced to the size of a human embryo, the creator of time and space, invading both in human form Such is the mystery and the majesty of the Incarnation, supreme being condescending to become one of us. Perhaps nothing is more important than grasping the significance of the coming God in human flesh. Without the life, death, and resurrection of the Incarnate One who walked among us, our world would be unfathomably dark. To be equipped as a witness and to be inspired in your walk, you'll want to feast on Hank Hanegraaff's book, Incarnation, the ultimate self-revelation of God. To receive your copy of Incarnation, simply call 888-7000-CRI and make a gift to support CRI's life-changing outreaches or visit equip.org. equip.org.